Good morning. Let's open with a word of prayer. Father, thank you for the joyous time that we have to come together to lift our voices, to give you thanks and praise and express our love for you and the appreciation that we have of being loved by you. This is the extension of our worship now as we give careful attention to the proclamation of your word and we invite you by your Holy Spirit to inhabit the speaker and the hearer and give us understanding into this text and let us leave this place changed. And now we devote this time to you in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. A deal with the devil is a cultural motif that's exemplified by the ancient legend of Faust. And Faust uh, supposedly had an encounter with a demonic figure by the name of Mephistopheles. Um, but it has its roots in a lot of different traditions. According to um, the, the ancient uh, beliefs of witchcraft, one could make a pact or a deal with the devil or a demon where you would trade your soul for some diabolical favor. And in most of the different myths, the different legends, usually the, the thing that you're trading for has to do with youth or knowledge or wealth or power or fame. But it's a, it's a dangerous bargain because you're betting your eternal soul for whatever uh, benefit that the demon or the devil could give you. Uh, most of the time in most of these stories, they have a rather bad ending. You know, you've traded something foolishly. Every once in a while, it has a, it has a, a comic twist. Some peasant has uh, managed to outwit the devil. He bets something that he doesn't feel like he's ever going to have to pay off. Like, for instance, um, you, the devil's going to give you a wish, and so you wish for eternal life. I mean, that's a pretty basic uh, wish if you only had one wish. Because you think that if you wish for eternal life, you're gonna live forever, you never have to give your soul to the devil, right? So you think you're, you've outwitted the devil, and then you get convicted of some uh, capital crime or life imprisonment, and you spend the rest of your life in a prison. So there's always that comic twist to the, the story. There's a number of these uh, tales um, in Europe having to do with someone who goes to the Devil's Bridge. So if you've ever been in Europe, there are a lot of these Devil's Bridges where you go to to encounter the, the dark one, and you make the great trade there. And there's uh, rumors about different uh, virtuosos like Giuseppe Tartini and Niccolo Paganini because they were such excellent violin players. Surely these guys had made a, a deal with the devil. And of course, one that we're all familiar with, and that's the Crossroads myth with Robert Johnson. And if you're, if you're a Cream fan, Eric Clapton, Eric Clapton's cover of the Crossroads song has to do with this particular myth. So apparently, Robert Johnson was a rather mediocre black musician, lived down in, in Mississippi, and he goes to this crossroads near this plantation where he encounters the devil and he makes the bargain. So he's, his, his whole career lasts like seven or eight months, then he mysteriously dies at the age of 27 that looks like poisoning, but in the, in the meantime, this, this mediocre musician makes this pact, this deal with the devil, and he comes back with some rather remarkable uh, stuff. He's, he's only recorded, like I said, six or seven months and maybe two dozen songs at, at most. 
in his whole career. And yet he becomes famous as this, this legend of great blues, especially um, the, the Delta blues. Then because of Robert Johnson, that was like 1937-ish, because of Robert Johnson, um, all the other blues players, you know, they, they latch on to that. So you have this, a, a plethora of blues songs that either have to do with dealing with the devil or dealing with the devil or the crossroads, like Eric Clapton's. James Cotton was famous for his dealing with the devil. I got the meanest woman man has ever seen. She sleeps with her knife in her hand, Lord. She fights in all her dreams. I've been dealing with the devil. I've been dealing with the devil. So that, that theme just keeps reoccurring uh, in the blues. Now, the, the blues legend is, uh, is colorful, but it's, it's myth. However, there is a very real element to it. There is a very real, powerful, malicious entity that we refer to as the devil, and he has specific designs for the destruction of man. Man who has been created in the image of God, man who has been granted redemption when the devil and his demons were not. And so the devil hates God and he hates mankind and created in his image. But more than anything else, he, he hates those whom God has decided to cover with his love. There is a, a very real danger to Christians today because we have a very real enemy who is a very real threat and a question that I'd like to put before you today is do we deal with the devil? Because Paul did, not in bargains, but in battles. So I'd like you to take your Bibles and turn with me where we left off last week, the first Thessalonians chapter two, verse 17. So far in our study, uh, Paul begins his, his um, topic, his letter to the Thessalonians by expressing great thanksgiving and great joy to God um, he's, he's grateful, he's joyous for God rescuing these individuals in Thessalonica. But as the consequence of these people coming to Christ, there, Paul has attracted a lot of critics. And the critics have said of Paul that he, that he lacks integrity, that he's, that he's greedy, he's a deceitful flatterer, he's power hungry, they have uh, been whispering in the ears of the Thessalonian Christians, you know, Paul really has no affection for you. It's, he's in it only for himself. And they point out that Paul, when the going got tough, Paul went going. He callously deserted them in the middle of, of, of the crisis. And so Paul uh, responds to these critics and then begins the portion that we are ending with chapter 2 verse 17 by defending why he left and it wasn't because he was afraid for himself it was because he was forced out now we know that story from Acts chapter 17 verse 1 through 10 and it tells the story of the the riot that the Jews stirred up and they the, the rioters ran to arrest Paul and Silas at the house of Jason they don't find Paul and Silas but they do find Jason Jason gets drugged before the magistrates, and Jason has to put up bail, a bond. He has to post a bond promising that Paul's not going to stir up any more trouble and cause any more riots like this one. And then they, verse, chapter, Acts chapter 17, verse 10, the brothers take Paul and Silas, and at nighttime they, 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 uh, they escort him out of town. So, so Paul is saying, I didn't leave willingly. 
I left because I had to. And uh, he's reminding the Thessalonians that if I could have, I, I, I would have stayed with you, and if I can, I would come back to you, but there's a problem. And so we get from this paragraph before us, there's, there's three elements that Paul is expressing to the Thessalonians here. He's, he talks, first of all, about his desire to be with them. He talks, secondly, about his understanding of his spiritual enemy, the devil, and finally, his great anticipation of the reward that awaits for him when Christ returns. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 17. <clears throat> but since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see, your to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. Now, it's interesting that he begins by, by addressing them as brothers because remember where he ended last week? He's... he's gives this rather scathing, unflattering description of the Jewish people, and the ones that, that crucified Christ and chased the, the Christians out. And now there's from this rather uh, vitriolic, harsh language that, that he's addressing the Jews with, suddenly he's changed in verse 17 to a rather comforting, warm, affectionate language, and he's addressing these, these Christians in Thessalonica as, as brothers, this warmth. Uh, of it. And then he goes on to, ex to express, we, we were literally torn away from you. And the word he uses, let's see, I can't quite see it, uh, aporphanesis. We get the word orphan from it. It's to be torn away unwilling, like, like, like a parent is torn away from their dead child, or a, a child is torn away from their dead parents. It's really a harsh word here that we get the word orphan from. And Paul's saying, that there, he, he feels this harsh, unnatural, premature separation from them, and, and he longs for them. He, he wishes that he could be with them. Uh, verse 17 says, uh, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face. You know, we live in an age that's very technologically advanced. We are more expert in communication than any other culture, than any other time of human existence. And yet, with this great ability to communicate, we become increasingly more isolated from one another. I mean, we don't get together and visit. We send an email, we, we send a text message. I mean, I spend most of my time on the phone or responding to emails and text messages, but consequently, because of that, we don't, we don't see each other face to face very much. And churches have become more and more impersonal. You come and you watch the, the pageantry take place, and you come and listen to somebody um, say something, but you're not engaged with other people. You don't fellowship with one another. There was a, a famous speaker not long ago who said that churches that don't have outstanding preachers should instead watch videos of great preachers during their Sunday services. You know... <clears throat> I'd be out of a job, but, you know. <laughs> and, you know, we, we all experienced that during COVID, right? We couldn't come to church, and so the best thing we could do was we could watch church. We watched a great speaker, and people would ask me, well, who should I turn into, tune into? And I said, well, watch Alistair Begg. He's a great preacher. I'm not. And, but you know the consequence of that? 
The consequence of that is that we lose touch with one another. We're not fellowshipping with each other. We're not seeing each other, as Paul says here, face to face. We're not involved in one another's lives. We're not challenging each other. We're not holding one another's feet to the flame to, to live a biblical life. We're not encouraged to have um, Christian community. And there's this incredible lack of genuine care for each other. You can't care for someone you can't have that intimacy with them over your email or over the phone. There has to be Christian community. And so that's why Paul here, he says, you know, I, I want to do more than just preach the gospel. I want to be with you. I want to see you face to face. I have this great desire because of this close-knit affection that you can only have for one another because of the danger to the church of not being able to struggle together when we're individually faced with trials and affliction. You know, how do you share that with someone that you're, you're struggling with sin or you're discouraged about life or you're challenged by events that have taken place? You can't do that unless we're meeting with one another face to face. Now, verse 18, he tells us exactly why he hasn't been back to see them why he hasn't had this face-to-face. -face. The reason for all of this is Satan has hindered us. Of course, we want to know, well, exactly how did Satan hinder you, Paul? Well, there's a number of different theories that come up. The bottom line is we don't know. But I'll tell you the theories in the meantime. One of the theories, probably the most plausible one, remember when uh, Jason gets drugged before the court, I've just told it to you that he has to put up bond, Acts chapter uh, 17, verses 1 through 10. Paul and Silas are mentioned here, and perhaps the bond included Paul and Silas can't come back, that, that they were banned from towns. Maybe that was the hindrance that, that Paul is referring to. Or in 2 Corinthians, Paul talks about this thorn in the flesh. And he specifically says this thorn in the flesh is a messenger of Satan. So a lot of people have theorized, well, you know, maybe this thorn in the flesh, and again, we don't really know what it was. Maybe it was a physical malady. Maybe it was you know, a spiritual one. Some people have guessed it was poor eyesight. Maybe because of this thorn in the flesh, this messenger of Satan, Paul couldn't come back to visit them in Thessalonica. The third theory is that you know, Paul, after he left Thessalonica went on down to Corinth and then down to Athens. And then from Athens, he has to deal with the problem of the Corinthian church. There's a scandal in the church. There's a spiritual problem. And Paul has to deal with that. Maybe this spiritual problem in Corinth is what kept him from being able to come back to Thessalonica. But again, let me reemphasize, nobody knows. It's just all guesswork. Uh, from there, what's, what's the thing that keeps him from going back to Thessalonica. But the point is that Paul clearly saw this hindrance of Satan being a person, not a general force, a specific entity, an individual that was powerfully keeping him, who was opposing him from being able to go back and minister to the Thess Thessalonians. Now, that has huge implications for us as well, because we struggle. We have to deal with the struggles of our own flesh, you know, that, that we are enticed so easily to sin, that we have this a willingness within us 
to stray away from God. Beyond that, we have the enticements of the world. There, are, you know, even if you decide I'm gonna, I'm gonna go straight, I'm gonna follow Jesus, I'm gonna obey the word, there's all these enticements that draw us to sin that are present in the world. But we also have a very personal evil entity who seduces us and draws us away. And Paul believes that with all of his heart, that there is an individual who's, who's bent on um, destroying you. This is an individual who's, whose existence is older than humanity itself, who is designed to destroy you, who is evil and wicked and wants nothing more than to thwart whatever God's plan is. Paul says, that's what I had to deal with. Now, Paul tells us here that Satan, Satan is the one who hindered him, but he's not going to drop it here either, because if you jump ahead to 3-5, where we're going to be in, in a minute, Paul mentions, and Satan tempted you, or is, a, or is trying to tempt you. So Satan hinders Paul, and Satan tempts the church. Now, for some reason, God, who is all-powerful, tolerates this wicked being who is not all-powerful. He is not omnipotent. He's not God's uh, antithesis. He's not all-present. He can only be at one place at one time. I have never encountered Satan. Probably Martin Luther did. Probably none of us have. But his influence is ubiquitous and his followers are great in numbers. So even if we're talking about um, not encountering the, the individual Satan, there's still this satanic influence that we're all um, wrestling with. But for some reason, God chooses more than to tolerate Satan. He chooses to allow Satan's influence, and somehow it glorifies God because in the end, God will deal with it. But we see the scripture mentions how many times that, that Satan has opposed the kingdom of God. He, 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 tempts, he tempted Christ, Matthew chapter 4. He opposes the gospel, Matthew 13, 2 Corinthians 4. He performs counterfeit miracles. He, he seeks to deceive believers. He perpetrates lies. He commits murder. He attacks individual churches. He especially attacks spiritual leaders. Curiously, though, Satan is specifically mentioned at being present in the churches of Jerusalem, Corinth, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, and Philadelphia. Satan's design is to thwart God's redemptive purpose. And he does so with efforts like an army trying to defend itself from an, from an oncoming uh, army. He, he uses the word, Satan hindered us. Well, the language here is a military term. It means to either plow up a road or dig a big ditch. So if you, had a, if you were the retreating army and there was an advancing army coming towards you, it was a great strategy to pull up the road because the roads were typically the only way to get through a, a muddy field or around a pass. And if you could tear up the road, you would hinder the advancing army to come at you. Similarly, you might dig a huge ditch, same word. Uh, dig a huge ditch that would keep the army from being able to get its supplies. You know, the men could crawl down and come back up, but the horses or the wagons, the carts would have, have trouble with that. And so Paul is depicting 
That's how Satan is, a, is, is making obstacles. He's hindering the advancement. He's hindering Paul. Now, Paul's trying to persuade his readers of his genuine conviction that there is this individual, this entity, Satan, who is the enemy of God, who, who tempts the followers of Christ, who works against the well-being of the Christian community, and who directly attacks the Christian's health and well-being because that's what he says happened to him. Now, Paul's worldview firmly believes in this struggle with an individual, 2 Corinthians 2 or 12, 7, that we struggle um, not against flesh and blood, excuse me, I'm in Ephesians 6, 12, uh, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against powers of this dark world, and against spiritual forces in the, of evil in the heavenly realm. Leon Morris describes Satan as being always opposed to God and of man's best interest. His activities in the realm of the spirit are seen in taking away the good seed from the heart of men and sowing evil people in the world. As the God of this world, he blinds the minds of the unbelieving. He tempted our Lord and he tempts his followers. Satan also hinders the work of Christ's servants and Christians who seek to serve the Lord have to deal with such opposition to the work of the gospel. When it comes to persecution, Satan desires to tempt new converts into unbelief. In the case of those who were never truly saved, Satan succeeds in thwarting the work of the gospel. In the case of the elect whose salvation Satan cannot stop, he tempts them through trials into a weak and unfruitful faith that complains against the Lord instead of praising him and giving him thanksgiving. I see myself in that last how tempting it is to complain instead of giving praise and thanksgiving. John Lilly says of the devil, how experienced, how subtle, how assiduous, how relentless, alas, how successful in seducing, binding, misleading, and destroying the human soul. You know, throughout the century, people have attempted to bind Satan, and perhaps you have been to churches where they do that rather regularly, where they, they bind Satan. Have you heard of people doing that? I have a question, though. If a Christian in the past has bound Satan, how does he keep getting loose again? You know? And if Satan is bound by our command, you know, how does he keep uh, oppressing us? How does he keep going around day to day as the roaring lion trying to get someone to devour? Of course, the answer that you're given, if you're one who's been encouraged to bind Satan as well, you doubted. You bound Satan in the name of Jesus, but you doubted, or you know, perhaps it could be that your faith was too weak, or could it be that we were never told by Jesus anywhere in Scripture ever to bind Satan? And in to that, someone will surely trot out Matthew 18, 18, about evidence of how we should bind Satan, which says, truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Doesn't that give us the authority to bind Satan? Yeah, except for the problem of context. And remember, a text without a context is a pretext. What's that text about? 
That text is about church discipline. That text has to do with, with the church leaders dealing with unrepentant sin in an individual in the church. And in that context, the decision that they make about binding the individual is binding on the church. It's not about binding Satan at all. Another thing you hear a lot about is rebuking Satan once more. There's nowhere in Scripture where we are told to rebuke Satan. You know, the only time Jesus ever told us to rebuke anyone had to do with rebuking a brother who was in unrepented sin. Uh, Luke 17, 3, pay attention to yourself. If your brother sins, again, this is brother or sister. It's the economy of words. It's not sexist. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. The bottom line is there's no biblical uh, support for Christians to, to pray to Satan, to rebuke Satan, or to bind Satan. We need to stop doing that. You know what? We all realize that we're in a spiritual battle. We are in this battle against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. But instead of being told to bind Satan or to rebuke Satan, to, to pray to Satan to stop throwing his fiery darts at us, what are we told to do? <laughs> Ephesians 6.13. Take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand the evil and having done all to stand firm. So rather than rebuking Satan, something Jesus never told or encouraged his followers to do, instead we are to stand firm in the full armor of God. Now, understand too that not everything bad that happens in your life is caused by Satan and the demons. You know, sometimes... Bad things just happen, and sometimes because of your sin, you cause them to happen. Or it could be the sin of somebody else that caused them to happen. I'm, I'm just trying to say let's not attribute everything that goes wrong in our life to Satan or you're going to be casting demons out of your toaster. Verse 19. For what is our hope or joy or crown or boasting before the Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Remember when I told you at the beginning that every single chapter of this letter ends with some reference to the Lord's coming. Remember that? So here's Paul, and he's imagining standing before the Lord at his coming. And the question is, um, what, what's our hope and our joy? What, and imagine... Some believer approaches Paul and says, you know, Paul, you've been beaten up and you've been slandered and you've been uh, shipwrecked and stranded and you've been falsely accused, you've been, you've been put in chains. Why do you do it? What's in it for you? And Paul might very well have answered using this text right here, verse 20, for you are our glory and joy. Remember, the accusation against Paul is he's, he's in it for himself. He's in it for his own glory. He's in it for money. He's an ambitious guy. He's power hungry. He's a glory seeker. And what does Paul say here? 
You know, you want to know why I'm in it? You don't want to know why I do all of this? I do it for you. My joy is that when Jesus comes and I stand before him, I'll present you to the Lord, and I will say to the Lord, here they are, Lord, and I will deliver them. I will deliver you safely to Jesus. That's why I'm in it. That's why I do it. They are his crown and his joy. They are what he boasts about. They're what makes him keep striving night and day. They're what's, they are the ones that enable him to bear the anxiety and, and the pressure and the persecution because he's looking forward to the day when he stands before Christ and he says, these are the ones that I present to you. That's why I do it. Like a good pastor, many times that meant for Paul that he was the one fighting for them, that he was the one fighting for them to abandon their sin, that he was the one encouraging them when no one else was encouraging them, when he was the one who was telling them to stick with it, when, when everybody else was saying give up on it. He had to fight the world. He had to fight the flesh. He had to fight the devil. And you know what? It's not without scars. They left Paul battered and scarred. But it's to the end that he would know that he had brought these people from safely home. Uh, chapter 3, verse 1. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker, in the gospel of Christ to establish and exhort you in the faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you now know. So just to remind you, remember Paul has left Thessalonica, he went to Berea, down to Corinth, and then he was in Athens. He got there ahead of the rest of his crew, so he was in Athens alone. Finally, the rest of the guys showed up in Athens. Now, Paul is saying, I was willing to be left in Athens alone again because of my great longing to find out how you were doing. And so he sends Timothy back to Thessalonica and Silas probably back to Philippi, although we don't, we don't know for sure. But why does he send Timothy? Well, probably because back to Acts chapter 17, verses 1 through 10, the people that were listed as the ones who might be excluded from coming back to Thessalonica were Paul and Silas. The list does not include Timothy. Paul and Silas are both uh, Jews who were considered rabble-rousers, troublemakers. Timothy's not a Jew. So probably Paul sends Timothy back because he's not included in the, uh, the bond or the, the prohibition to come back to Thessalonica. But that's just guesswork. But he, uh, Paul tells them uh, specifically what he's assigned Timothy to do. His, his assignment is, first of all, to strengthen and establish the Thessalonians' faith. Strengthen means to uh, support or, or buttress something uh, to, uh, to establish it. You have to have strong faith, which is the consequence of strong, sound doctrine. So Timothy has to go and teach them what they need to know 
the knowledge that they have to have an understanding of the truth to be strong in their faith. And then the second thing he's told his assignment is to exhort or to, uh, what's the other word there, uh, encourage them. Again, that takes us back to the concept that Timothy needs to be there face to face, you know, to, to come alongside is the idea here, to come alongside someone to encourage them uh, through the hardships of life. And verse 3 reminds us that uh, we as believers should expect affliction or tribulations or persecutions. And notice what he says. You were destined for these afflictions. Not that it's likely or even probable or a possibility. He says you are destined for afflictions. You are destined for hardships. Um, they, they will come. And so the question that comes before us then is if we are destined as Christians for hardships, for affliction, for persecution, then how do we prepare for them? And the answer is right before that. You prepare for hardships and affliction and tribulation through finding encouragement from brothers and sisters in the church, through knowing the word of God, which, which Timothy, I'm working backwards in case you didn't know. You find encouragement through the, the fellowship of the church with brothers and sisters, and you find the uh, strengthening through the word that comes from the church. That's how we are established and readied for the afflictions which are to come. This, by the way, is the secondary purpose of the church, to strengthen one another, to encourage one another, to teach the word of God is the secondary purpose of the church. The primary purpose of the church is that we gather together to worship God through his son, Jesus Christ. Now, Paul wants us to come through afflictions. He wants us to... Um, suffer boldly with our faith. He wants us to be strengthened, encouraged in the truth so that we can resist Satan's temptations. We can oppose him. We can stand strong through those afflictions because in the end we know that God, who alone is all-powerful, permits it in our life. God could stop the tribulation anytime he wants, but he doesn't. So either it's for our strengthening and our perfection or for it's for, it's for God's glory. And in either case, is there really too much to ask? We are being perfected through our afflictions or if God is being glorified through it. In any case, we know that God intends them for our ultimate good. Gregory Beale wrote, the question is not whether or not we will face trials, but whether we will whether or not we will be faithful in confronting trials. In the end, chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, turns the health and wealth gospel on its head and contends that the church will not be spiritually healthy unless it goes through real trial and persecution, which may entail loss of health, wealth, and material possessions. Sadly, some churches may not go through the persecutions that they should because they don't raise their doctrinal and ethical profile high enough in standing for the gospel. Yet one thing remains clear from this text. The devil and the world will try to knock God's people down and when, and when they try to stand high for him. 
Verse 5. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith, for I fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. The apostle has this anxiety, this fear that somehow the tempter, Satan, Lucifer, the evil one, has effectively drawn them away from a strong faith. He's, he's afraid that he's presented the gospel, but it hasn't, it hasn't landed in them yet. Remember, Satan's first assault is to prevent people from believing, and his second assault is to destroy someone's initial interest in the gospel. Remember the story of the, of the uh, seed that was planted and um, the seed that was sown in the rocky places, the, the guy hears it, responds to it immediately and yet doesn't have any root and so when a persecution arises he bails out because of the word and then if Satan can't um, accomplish his assault in those first two his final assault is to keep people from embracing the gospel he tries to weaken our faith and make us lukewarm I suspect that's where most of us are is that we are genuinely saved and our, our salvation is secure in him. But the enemy tempts us to be ineffective, to live mediocre lives, to be comfortable with not really standing out or accomplishing anything. Satan had tempted them had he been successful in drawing them away from the gospel, then Paul says that his labor among them would have been in vain. So Paul's concerned about the Thessalonians' faith. He wants to know that their faith was real rather than superficial. In the end, you know, Satan and his works will be destroyed. Romans 16.20 proclaims the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. But I want you to notice something. The crushing of Satan is God's work, not yours. God's the one that's going to put Satan down. It's, it's, the, it's the job of the church, the, the Christian community, to be knit together in love and strengthened in faith so that we can stand in, in victory. Our, our goal is not to, to, to root out the devil or to identify all of the different minions of his, his realm. We can't do that, nor, nor should we even try to but we should take advantage of every opportunity to thwart Satan's influence by proclaiming the gospel and by loving God and by remi being reminded that our challenge is that we should stand firm. Do you ever think, you know, what a great victory the church has won, the Lord has won, if when we gather together, we commit ourselves to worshiping God and obeying the church. And have you ever thought about what a, a blow it is to Satan and to his dominion every time you get together for a Bible study or you meet someone for coffee to give them encouragement or you're meeting with a bunch of preschoolers and you're teaching them something about the Bible or every time a mother sits down and, and prays with her children before they go to bed or every time a father opens the scripture up and places it on on the table and when you refuse to be drawn into the, the the world's 
Satan's lie that, that sin is good and good for you. When you sacrificially love someone, by sacrificially, I mean it costs you something to express love. If Christians just don't, don't buy into the agenda, if we hold fast to the Word of God, the, the biblical godliness, Christian mission, then, then Satan can't win. So Paul would write to the Corinthians, therefore, my beloved brothers, stand fast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Again, the challenge before us is from Ephesians 6.13, having done all to stand. The countless Greedy, selfish people have made a deal with the devil, bargaining some favor, attempting to use his power for their own benefit. And the really sad truth, corollary to that, is it, it often happens in Christian church where we sell out for the goals that we want. We want bigger churches, we want more dynamic ministries, we want more glitz and glamour, we want smoke and fog machines. We sell out to the enemy's method of building the church instead of the Lord's method of building the church. A lot of Christians are making deals with the devil. Paul made a deal with the devil. He was constantly dealing with the devil. And so are we. Not in bargains, but in battle. Let's close them. Father God, never let us be content with just being an educational institution. Never let us come to church only to be amused. I pray that you will build fellowship into this church, that we love one another, that we are not content with mediocrity. I pray that we realize we truly are in a spiritual battle. You have provided the armor for us. We just need to take advantage of it. As we grow to be more knowledgeable, let us grow in truth. Let us understand who you are and who we are. Father, I may pray that you will please make this church a powerful presence in this community for Jesus Christ. For we ask it in his name.